Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our Associate Pastor of Worship, Matt Perkinson. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to take them and turn with me to Psalm 126. The book of Psalms was a songbook of the Hebrew people and is comprised of 150 total chapters. We've been learning from our pastor that these 15 songs of ascent that begin with Psalm 120 and end with Psalm 134 were sung by Jewish pilgrims as they made their ascent from their homes to Zion, Jerusalem, on three different prescribed feasts, Passover, Pentecost, and the Day of Atonement. So it is within this context that we find ourselves at today's seventh song of ascent within this series. With Bibles open, I invite you to stand with me in the honor of uh, reading God's Word to Psalm 126. The psalmist says, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter, and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy and inerrant word. You may be seated. I've entitled today's message, The Lord's Restoration. And from this brief six-verse psalm, I believe we see three points emerge. The first one that we'll see is the joy of the past. The second, a prayer for blessing. And third, a joyful promise. So let's look to the joy of the past that the psalmist sees. As we look to these first three verses that we just read, we quickly see expressions of gratitude to God for a miraculous restoration and deliverance that had occurred in the past. In fact, we see them describe that this miracle was like a dream. They laughed, then they shouted, and they gave thanks to God. Look, at me, look with me again at verse 1. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Other translations, such as your New American Standard, if you're reading from that, renders it, when the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion, we were like those who dream. So regardless of how your translation reads, we see that it was the Lord who brought an end to some type of suffering, some type of bondage, and replaced it with a blessing. While the psalmist does not tell us exactly and specifically what they were delivered from, it could have been a Babylonian captivity, a famine, or something else. I think what is noteworthy for us, church, to see here is that while they were in terrible bondage, it was the Lord, Yahweh, who caused this miracle. He brought the immediate restoration and freedom. 
Not only did God rescue them from their bondage, it's important to remember that in the past with the Israelites, God had allowed exile and difficulty to come to Israel as consequences for their own idolatry and unbelief. If you will, turn back into the um, beginnings of your Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 29. We're going to look at verses 24 through 28. Deuteronomy 29, verses 24 through 28 says, All the nations will say, Why has the Lord done this to the land? What caused the heat of this great anger? Then people will say, It is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods whom they had not known and whom he had not allotted to them. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land, bringing upon it all the curses written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and great wrath and cast them into another land as they are this day. So whatever sin had caused such a captivity and loss of blessing, we see that a complete 180 occurred here. Blessing was restored. And how, how do we know? Well, it says that they basically had to pinch themselves, right? Is this a miracle? Is this a, what's going on here? Is this a dream? Are we dreaming? We were in bondage. Now we're set free. Verse 1 says that they were dreaming. God's restoration and this recovery of the fortunes and captivity was a transition of God's divine judgment, as we saw in Deuteronomy 29, to God's divine blessing. It was miraculous, abrupt, such a rapid turn of events, and they were overwhelmed. We see that this led to unbridled laughter and joyful shouting. Let's look at verse 2 together and see their reaction. It says, Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. It is here that we are introduced to their reaction of what the Lord has done. First, as Israel's hearts are filled with appreciation for the Lord's goodness, then it overflowed into verbal expressions of praise. If the laughter and the shouts of these songs of joy weren't enough to express this unfathomable turn of events, check this out in the second half of verse 2. The surrounding pagan nations give testimony to what God had done. Second half of verse 2 says, Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them, looking at the children of Israel, them. What an incredible thing. This event was so jaw-dropping that Gentile nations paused and admitted a divine being had brought the restoration. More importantly, church, not just any deity, they were specific in naming who did the work. Did you see it? Then they said among the nations, the who, the Lord, Yahweh, has done great things for them. Yes, God restored the fortunes, but I believe that the primary purpose was not to inflate Israel's prominence or financial stability, but rather we know that it was for God's own glory, that he alone could accomplish such an act. In verse 3, we see the children of Israel agree with the direct declaration of the pagan nations. You see that it's personalized here. They say, the Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. This verse is almost identical to verse 2, right? 
They say the, the pagan nations say the Lord has done great things for them, talking of the children of Israel. Children of Israel say, that's right, the Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. You see, the Lord's blessing prompted joy in his people. That joy overflowed into praise. And that praise directed the surrounding nations to recognize the glory of God. So as the psalmist looks back on this past event where God did a miracle and restored the blessing of, of Israel in an instant, let me ask you, have you ever had a moment where you've been restored of something or you felt like you were dreaming? Maybe it was the purchase of your first car. I was pretty excited about that, even though I was 19 years old before that happened, right? Maybe it was buying your first home when the Lord graciously uh, uh, approved you for, uh, for a home that you could take care of your family in, to, to house your children and to have a yard to play in, all those things. Maybe it was when you were married, you married your spouse. You know, oftentimes people ask me, well, how's Michelle doing? And my immediate answer, well, she's great. She's married to me. How much, how much more could dreamy could that be, right? <laughs> of course, we all know the truth of that, right? I, I am the one who's, who's living the dream. But maybe you've had some circumstances like that where you had to pinch yourself and just pause and say, thank you, God. You are so good to us. Whatever those things might be, I believe that they pale in comparison to what we see here. What we see here is that the children of Israel are in bondage, right? They're, they have no freedom. They've lost their fortunes. Whatever they have lost, it has been restored. Maybe we can liken it to the healing from a disease. You know, if you're, you're struggling with a disease and you're healed from it, you rejoice. Amen? But even that... I think sometimes, most often, those healing come from a gradual um, type of prognosis and treatment plan. It's not an instant. This is what we're talking about here. An instantaneous, one day you're in bondage, the next day you're set free. You know, maybe you're thinking, well, I have not experienced something like that. And that may be true, but be assured if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have experienced through Christ's shed blood a great deliverance. Amen? A miracle that could only be accomplished by the Lord. Much like the restoration of the Israelites here, our salvation is accompanied by great joy and genuine thanksgiving. Paul tells us in Colossians 1.13 that we are transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his dear Son, and we who were once dead are now alive in Christ Jesus. When a person witnesses the glory and majesty of God, we immediately see our depravity, wretchedness, impurity, just as Isaiah did in Isaiah chapter 6. Yet, God who is rich in mercy shows grace that when we are dead in trespasses of sins, made us alive together with Christ. Church, when God granted us this realization and upon our confession of faith in Christ, did we say like the Israelites, the Lord has done great things for us? We are glad. Oh, I'm sure we did. And in that same way, let me ask us, does your and does my light shine before others? 
so that they may see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven? Do the nations recognize that we are children of the Most High? Pagan nations in, in ancient Israel recognized such a glorious restoration. Oh, may it never be that we get used to the redemption of our souls to a holy, loving, gracious God. And just as the psalmist looks in the rearview mirror of God's blessings, what I believe not out of nostalgia, but a correctly placed and secured hope in the Lord, so we too ought to remember how the Lord has been good to us, mainly our salvation. So while this restoration of fortunes was a great time of rejoicing and one that the psalmist looks fondly upon, it seems like the days of this, <clears throat> excuse me, the days of this exuberant rejoicing and great gladness had subsided. The realities of life began to be realized. If you will look at me, look with me at verse four, and we'll see the psalmist offer a prayer for blessing. This is a blessing for the Lord to restore something again. Verse 4 says, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Your translation might say streams of the south. It's the same idea and same region. The Negev is an arid region of south Israel that is dry and desolate in the summer, but quickly turns from desert to floods, giving life to desert blooms, much like a garden. In the difficult, hard reality of life that the psalmist finds himself in, he prays and he petitions the Lord to turn their barrenness, their loss of joy, and hard toil to blessing quickly, immediately, just as the Negeb turns from desert to flooding streams of water. The psalmist calls upon God to do something here that he had done in the past. Remember, he's looking to the past. He's asking God to do it again, just in a different way. Now, remember what was said earlier. The miracle is that God restored the Israelites from some type of captivity, exile, famine that was a result of their own sinfulness. So what he's praying here is for a return of God's forgiveness and blessing. In our vernacular, it's like us asking for spiritual renewal a revival of sorts. This is important for us to take note of. Charles Spurgeon once said, quote, nothing strengthens faith more effectively than the memory of an experience with God. So the writer comes before God knowing that nothing is too difficult for the Lord because he's experienced that personally. He has the scripture to tell him of God's faithfulness before, and he asks for an immediate renewal of God's blessings and faith. Church, there is great wisdom in praying to the Lord and asking anew to Him, recalling His great blessings. One of my favorite psalms is Psalms 100 and chapter 3, verses 2 through 5, which says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. And the psalmist gives us a taste of what we ought to be thankful for if we have trouble remembering. He begins to list these things. And forget not all of his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity? Who heals all your diseases? Who redeems your life from the pit? Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy? Who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles? <laughs> Where else could we go but to him who has done such a great thing for us? 
Who can bring back such peace and restoration to my weary, downtrodden soul? If God did it once, he could surely do it again. Throughout our journey in this life, church, we resonate with the psalmist and often discover ourselves in a desert, maybe physically, emotionally, at some point, most assuredly, a spiritual desert. It is good and right to bring our concerns and burdens to the Lord because He cares for us. This is the great thing. No burden or care is too great or too small for Him. It's important to remember and praise His past examples of power and blessings through prayer while humbly asking Him to do what we cannot possibly do. He alone can fill our wearied spirits with floods of renewed joy and delight for His glory and our good. And there will never come a time in our Christian life where we no longer need to cry out for God. So after this personal prayer that the psalmist offers to God to send a flood of blessings, restoration, renewed joys, we leave the recollection of the joy of the past, what he had done, the prayer for God to do it again. And now we look to find the joyful promise, which is a time of sorrow followed by insurmountable joy, and it is here that the image switches from the arid desert turned to fertile land to an agricultural metaphor of sowing and reaping. Look with me at verses 5 and 6. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Uh, now, I'm not a farmer, clearly, and I certainly, you know, am beginning to look less like a farmer, you know, the more I, I like fried chicken and, you know, mac and cheese and sodas, all of those things. But there is much pain and work and patience, really, for lack of a better term, blood, sweat, and tears in farming, right? It's, um, it's not an overnight success. It's a process that takes months of constant care and attention. The psalmist reminds the children of Israel here that it takes months, sometimes years, or maybe just a moment. There's an interval there between the sowing of the prayers and the reaping of God's restoration. They must have patience as this seed grows into maturity. And as they wait for the Lord, their responsibility, as well as our responsibility, is to maintain faith and obedience to Him because remember from verse 4, the psalmist is praying for spiritual renewal. This is a statement of faith in verse 5 and 6, a statement of hope, a statement for every blood-bought believer. For we sow, and we may sow, and we will sow in this world with tears, but we will reap in the world to come with joy. There are two elements that I want to discuss here as it relates to the sorrow and sowing and the reaping of joy. The first element is the relationship of the believer's brokenness over sin and the eternal reward of joy. The tears that this farmer sows are tears of repentance. The sower is broken over his sinfulness before the Lord. And what's the promise that we see here? Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy, will be restored with joy. When was the last time that we were truly broken over our own sinfulness? 
Do we give ourselves enough time in God's word, in prayer, in meditation, to think about our sin? Or do we brush over it with a broad brush and say, well, God understands my heart. He knows. And we presume over his grace and his willingness to forgive. May it never be. But the other side of that coin, church family, is that while we weep over our sin, and we should, we do not do so without hope or as those who have no victory over the sin. You see, the moment we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and commit to live in obedience to him, we are given the gift of the Holy Spirit and Christ's righteousness is then credited to our account. Our heart and our mind, they're transformed. We no longer live in our own power and strength, which, not to burst any balloons, but we have none of that, right? But Christ's strength and righteousness dwells richly within us. If you feel defeated, and you will, be encouraged. Keep fighting. Let us be faithful to God. You will reap shouts of joy, maybe not in this world, but you, we will be rewarded eternally by our Heavenly Father. Well, not only does the farmer have spiritual toils, he doesn't have them in a vacuum, meaning, well, I'm just an individual and I'm struggling with my sin by myself and I'm just in a world of one. No, he doesn't do that. He experiences the sorrow over, yes, his continued sinfulness, but verse 6 so that there's also a toil of loving God and sharing the gospel. We're to go out day after day bearing the seed for sowing, as the psalmist says. The seed that we bear, church, is the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. We labor, we weep over it. As we go out spreading the seed, the sharing of the gospel can be hard, right? It can be scary. We can, we can lack confidence. In maybe what we know about the Bible, we, we feel all, this, all of a sudden inadequate to share what we know. Or even worse, we're afraid of maybe having doors shut in our faces, fear of losing relationships with friends, even some of our most loving family members. Those sacrifices are real, and, and that's serious considerations. But I'm always drawn to remember our God who's no stranger to sacrifice himself. He who spared not his own son, but gave himself a ransom for many. I then am reminded of the seriousness of sin, God's righteous wrath, and the great flood of forgiveness and spiritual awakening offered to those who would believe. How could I remain silent about such a wonderful gift of grace? Church, we cannot and we must not. Let's continue to go out weeping, toil, and work as gospel sowers, no matter what earthly harvest is experienced, because we recognize that our job only is to be faithful, for it is God who brings the growth, right? And if we remain faithful to God, He in His sovereignty will bring the harvest that will glorify Him the most, and that which will make us more like Him. The Lord is good. Do you agree? Amen. He is good. And just like the psalmist, we're to remember the joy of the past, God's past blessings, granting you salvation, immediately transforming us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of Christ. May we think often of his goodness to us in so many ways.
Secondly, we're to continually pray for our own spiritual renewal and blessing. And finally, as we toil in this world that's not our home, we're to reflect on the joy we have in knowing Christ. And should trials come, and they will, maintain the steadfast hope that we will reap the eternal blessing of being where Christ is when we come to the end of our race and remain faithful in spreading the seed. And this is what we do when we come together every Sunday to worship the Lord corporately. We remind one another of God's blessings, past, present, and future. We petition the Lord for spiritual renewal, both individually and corporately, for our church, state, nation, and world. While finally, we consider how to stir one another to love and good deeds to say, persevere, continue, remain faithful. And that we're not to grow weary in doing what is good. All these things are present when we do the Lord's Supper, baptisms, your singing, prayers, the preaching, hearing of God's word, the giving of our offerings, and our fellowship. It is good to be in the house of the Lord with God's people. And I need the encouragement to persevere. Don't you? Paul in Romans chapter 8 verses 18 says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is revealed to us. God's purpose as the one who restores is that we would glorify him and say like the Israelites, no matter what tears, sorrow, weeping may happen in this world, the Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. I'd like to close with a familiar hymn written by Fanny Crosby. The first verse begins with, To God be the glory, great things He has done. So loved He the world that He gave us His Son, who yielded His life in atonement for sin, and opened the life gate that all may go in. O perfect redemption, the purchase of God, to every believer, the promise of God. The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. Great things he has taught us, great things he hath done, and great our rejoicing through Jesus the Son. But purer and higher and greater will be our wonder, our victory, when Jesus we see. Then a huge doxological chorus of praise to the Lord says, Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, you pagan nations. Let the earth hear his voice. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Oh, people of God, let the people rejoice. Oh, come to the Father, right? Through Jesus the Son and give him the glory. Great things he hath done. Amen? Amen. Let us pray and give thanks to the Lord. Father, we do praise you that you alone can bring reconciliation to yourself from a sinful, unrepentant people. And you show us grace and mercy. Father, just as the psalmist looked back on, on past blessings, we do so as well. We thank you for your word, how we have thousands of years of testimony of how you're actively engaged in and the blessing of 
your creation and your people. Lord, the greatest example of that was you who did not spare your own son, but you freely gave Christ Jesus that he would become the ransom for our souls, that we might be rescued and redeemed back to yourself, that we could glorify you. So Lord, we pray that you would continue to shape and fashion our minds and our hearts into the image of Jesus Christ, that we would grow in godliness. And Father, as we continue to toil in this land for however many days, hours, months, years we have, remaining. We know you're sovereign over all. And so, Father, help us to not lose heart. Help us to not grow weary in doing what is good and what is right, but help us to remember that Christ Jesus dwells within us, that we have the gift of the Holy Spirit, and we're to continue to sow the seed, to be faithful to the call until you call us home, where we will be with you for eternity. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus Christ. Thank you for the Lord for the privilege of doing life together as your people here at First Baptist Church Keller. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.